What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You are going it. Do you always order champagne? No. Then why'd you do it now? I was hoping it would make you more friendly. I think it will. Leslie Howard and Betty Davis in 1934's Of Human Bondage. I feel like this advice is too little too late, but that champagne... Not going to make Betty Davis's Mildred any friendlier. <laughs> Things get pretty ugly. Of Human Bondage, the first film in our four-film Betty Davis Marathon, which kicks off this week. Plus, our 1930s movies starter pack. Five films from a variety of genres to introduce you to one of the great movie decades. All that and more. I never cared for you not once. Ahead on Film Spotting. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. First, just an acknowledgement seems only right to do, Josh, that this is a very weird time. And it's likely to get even weirder between the time we're recording this show and the time listeners hear it. Everything is happening very fast these days. We are wishing everyone and their families good health. We're going to do our best to continue film spotting as normal in this difficult time. The fact that, you know, the social distancing, the space we're even trying to keep from each other, we can't do our five-minute dapping each other up routine before every recording. True. It gets us hyped. <laughs> so for a little low energy, yeah. that's why. If we're off our games, you now know why. This week, with new releases being postponed and many theaters closing their doors, we're going to look back to a time, an easier time, Josh, when all you had to worry about was typhoid, smallpox, and tuberculosis the 1930s. We will start our four-film Betty Davis Marathon with 1934's Of Human Bondage. Our podcast listeners will get results from the Sweet 16 round of Film Spotting Madness, a couple surprising upsets, both involving a single director. I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about it yet. We will, of course, then share our Elite Eight matchups. But first, maybe you are finding yourself with a little bit of downtime, more than usual. It might be a good time to check out some 1930s blind spots. It's what started as our top five films of the 1930s. And as we realized the assortment of quality cinema to choose from, that was pretty absurd to try to narrow it down an entire decade and as one as good as the 1930s to just five. And instead, someone in the group, maybe it was Sam, maybe it was you, Josh, I don't remember, suggested this starters pack yeah, approach. Yeah, I think it was Sam. And I love okay. it. Yeah, because there's no way you, it would have been we just survived basically doing our top 20 films of the 2010s. And I think the 30s would be even more difficult. Obviously, there's way more distance um, and we're able to 
have some settle as assumed classics from mm-hmm. the 30s that makes this tough. But yeah, a starter pack is a much easier way to get our arms around it. And I think maybe a more helpful one, especially for those who have seen a handful of films from that decade, but not a ton and are wondering uh, where they should start. There is one film from the 1930s, only one. There could be more, that's for sure. In the film spotting pantheon, it is The Wizard of Oz from 1939. And the reality is you could do a top five list of the 30s that's just from 39. There are at least five masterpieces, including The Wizard of Oz and maybe one or two others that will come up between our list. And that's not even counting Gone with the Wind, Josh, which I still haven't seen. Yeah, this wasn't your opportunity to knock it out? I have been trying to fit in a few other things, Josh. I don't think I'm ready to take the plunge yet on Gone with the Wind. So how did you approach this list? So, yeah, having The Wizard of Oz in the Pantheon definitely helped because that is that is one that's in my top 20 of all time. All right. So it was nice to be able to set that aside. I also set it aside because as we're talking about this, we wanted to capture trends, I think, or genres that were popular in the 30s that defined the decade. So, yeah, this is not a best of the decade list. And The Wizard of Oz is something of a one of a kind film, I think. It doesn't really represent um, a, a trend that you did see at that time. Other one-of-a-kind films would be Gone with the Wind. I would sort of put it in that Hmm. category. I mean, it's a romantic drama, has an epic sweep. Certainly there were some of those, but it has come to stand alone, I think. Yeah, I get it. There's the musical quality, obviously, as well, but very different than some others we may talk about. Yep, I think so. And maybe something like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, a landmark film, absolutely, as Disney's first animated feature from 37, but also not quite representative of the decade. Now, I will say that to go back and speak to your point about how great this decade was, I mentioned the top 20 of all time. We did that sight and sound list back in 2012 with Michael Phillips. Four titles in my top 20 came from the 1930s. Really? So three of them are going to be in my starter pack. I'm not going to spoil them here. Hmm. I'll get to them as we proceed down the list. I don't know that I had any from the 1930s. You are so much more sophisticated than I am, Josh. And actually, I joke because I thought about that to an extent, putting together my list. I wasn't just trying to pick the five films that I loved the most, but I did want there to be an element of fun to them. I wanted these to be films that potentially people could hear us and think, I do have a little bit of extra time and I haven't seen these movies. I'm going to watch it, want to give them a good time as they watch. But also there has to be that element of culture. There has to be that sense that you are watching five films from the decade that really stand out as five of the best and five films that every cinephile, frankly, probably does need to see. So I was trying to have that balance to my list. What's your number five? It doesn't really matter probably so much the order, though I did kind of count down in terms of my favorites. Yeah, I think that's how I ranked these as well. Personal preference, but you couldn't go wrong starting with any of them on my list. Number five is The Public Enemy from 1931. So the gangster genre, um, I don't think you could say it was born in the 1930s. There are plenty of films like that from the silent era, but It probably came into its own during the decade with the advent of sound and then really the emergence of Warner Brothers as the genre's main producer. The stable that came from Warner Brothers included The Public Enemy, directed by William Wellman and starring James Cagney. He plays Tom Powers, who rises from an abusive childhood to small-time crime to big bootlegging as an adult. It's somewhat uh, earlier films had these elements too, but you can look at this as the prototype really for almost every gangster movie ever made, both narratively and morally. This movie's treatment, again, 1931, of sex and violence is shockingly alive. It's definitely sensationalistic. At the same time, 
the movie makes sure that Tom gets what is coming to him in the end. So basically, Tom is going to pay the price for the audience's pleasure. And how many of our gangster films, crime films, really don't follow that same sort of arc? As Tom Cagney is just mesmerizing, he's unpredictably frightening. He has these sleepy eyes, you know, and and sort of an incongruous physical grace that relaxes you and then the violence will erupt. Uh, One of his most famous scenes is in The Public Enemy. It's also a flashpoint for considering how this genre treats women. It's when he smashes a grapefruit into Mae Clark's face. Yeah. Ain't you got a drink in the house? Well, not before breakfast, dear. I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink. I know, Tom, but... Well, gee, I, I wish that... There you go down wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. So that I could tie a bucket to you and sink you. So that's The Public Enemy, other gangster titles from the 30s that you could consider for this list. Little Caesar came out the same year. Scarface was the next year. Cagney again in 1938's Angels with Dirty Faces. As for how to see The Public Enemy, Sam had another good idea. We should probably let folks know how they can see these via streaming, since that's pretty much our only option now. Even my beloved public library might not be an option for folks in the coming weeks. Interlibrary loan might be shut down. So um, maybe you use your library's Canopy streaming service. That is an option. Unfortunately, The Public Enemy I couldn't find on Canopy. I did find it on Amazon Prime and YouTube movies. So you can check it out there. Yeah, Amazon Prime is where I watched it. That was some homework I had to do for this list. Have seen Angels with Dirty Faces, maybe one or two other Cagney films from the decade. But I think one of the pleasures for me, certainly the main pleasure, is watching Cagney and understanding that persona and how it has been so influential and been imitated so many times over the years. As someone who in the 80s loved and frankly still love the Michael Keaton comedy, Johnny Dangerously. I now understand almost all of the jokes that I didn't before. I mean, I knew what they were riffing on without knowing how much of it was coming directly from Cagney and the public enemy. There's also something about Cagney's face that struck me having watched of human bondage first. And obviously, we're going to talk more about Davis later in the show. But there's a similar quality between Davis and Cagney in terms of their face, something just literally about the structure of their face. No, you're right. I where their lips that. are turned up a little bit and they've got that nose and they just always look like they're looking at you like, yeah. what's your problem? Yeah, it's something you know? to do with the eyes. Yeah, there is something about their faces that is ready for whatever assault challenge. Yeah, might be coming their way or challenge. So I did appreciate that. I also loved, Josh, as you talk about the sensationalism of it, and this is pre-code here with the public enemy, mm-hmm. pre-Hayes code, they still felt compelled to point out at the beginning and end that we're not doing this to try to be sensationalistic. This isn't about having any pleasure as we watch these hoodlums. This is a problem. There's a pre-apology. Yeah, there's the (laughs) pre-apology and at the end, a reminder Mm -hmm. that this is an issue society is facing and you don't really believe a bit of the filmmakers at all as they tell you that. But I understand that they felt the need to because otherwise it is really easy to watch Cagney and all those despicable things he's doing and think, I want to be kind of like him. Yeah, looks like a lot of fun. So I'm going to go to a 1939 film for my number five. It's one of two that is going to make my list. And this is, I think, one of the defining romantic comedies of the era. So many to choose from. I'm going with Ninochka, starring Greta Garbo, Melvin Douglas, from director Ernst Lubitsch. This is a film that was part of our Ernst Lubitsch marathon, I think back in 2010 on the show, Josh. 
You're talking about one of the all-time master directors and, of course, one of the stars of the period, her period being the 20s and 30s. She only made one other film after Nadachka in 39. In 99, the American Film Institute did their top Hollywood stars, basically, of the classical Hollywood cinema, the top 25 actors, top 25 actresses, and Garbo was fifth on that list. You could probably guess the others, even if you got the order a little wrong. Catherine Hepburn, one, Betty Davis, two, Audrey Hepburn, three, Ingrid Bergman, four, Garbo, fifth. And I do think, like Davis, there's nobody else like Garbo. There's nobody else like Cagney. There's certainly nobody else like Garbo either. And this was her first time doing a full-on comedy where she plays a Russian diplomat who gets sent to Paris because some jewels that were seized during the Russian Revolution. These three guys that were sent have botched the sale of this, and she's got to go oversee it and make sure that everything ends up going smoothly. She meets Melvin Douglas's Count Leon, who is a capitalist to the core. He's all about indulging in the finer aspects of life and luxury. None of the things that she is into, of course, coming from Russia. And as you might expect, the opposites do end up attracting. She is playing this cold humorless Russian, very stone-faced, but I think that only amplifies those wonderful comedic and romantic moments that we get in the film when you see those little breaks in the armor, basically. And its blend of dialogue, the repartee, and the physical comedy is another thing that really makes this film stand out and something that Lubitsch was obviously a genius at. There's a key scene where she's drunk, Melvin Douglas is drunk, And she's talking about how happy she is. And of course, as a Russian coming from where she does, that must be too happy. Something must be wrong. She basically says, I should be stood up in front of a firing squad. That's how happy I am. I need to be punished for it. Leon, I want to confess. I know. This is a Russian soul. Well, everyone wants to confess. And if they don't confess, they make them confess. I am a traitor. When I kissed you, I betrayed a Russian ideal. I should be stood up against the wall. Will that make you any happier? Much happier. All right. So the end of that great scene there maybe isn't the best radio because it is all physical comedy. What you miss, what you can see, if you look it up on YouTube or go to our top five list page at filmspotting.net and click on it, you can see Douglas blindfold her, go over sneak in one last kiss before he says goodbye to her, and then he pops the champagne cork, which Garbo, leaning up against the door, takes as if that's the shot of the gun, and she slinks down as if she's actually been killed. Again, maybe not great radio, but it is great cinema. Nanachka, also one of those major films of the time, four Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture. Garbo got a nomination for Best Actress original story and screenplay as well. And it is available on pretty much all of the digital platforms, Amazon Prime, YouTube, iTunes, Vudu, Google Play. I am so glad you have these sorts of films covered. Romantic comedies, uh, maybe, I don't know if you'd consider the screwball comedy, but those as well. Close um, enough. Such, you know, so close to the height of the cinema that was coming out in the 30s were these sorts of films. The one I'll throw in there um, that I was also encourage listeners to check out is The Awful Truth with uh, yep. Cary Grant and Irene Dunn as basically a married couple who fall in love in the midst of their own divorce from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very screwball-y, so funny. And yeah, this is, this is definitely a genre that need to be represented on one of 
our list. Glad you got it covered. My number four is going to be, well, actually, let me share a note we got from a listener, because this is another genre that Kim Very Racy Zuckert emailed in, wanted to make sure that we didn't overlook. She said, the film I hope you will consider goes in the horror category, a very competitive category in the 1930s when you have Dracula, Frankenstein, and Bride of Frankenstein, The Mummy, Freaks, The Black Cat, and on and on and on. This past Halloween, I saw what is now my favorite, The Old Dark House, also known as the movie that Rocky Horror is spoofing. It has wonderful performances by Charles Lawton, Boris Karloff, and terribly young Melvin Douglas, Raymond Massey, and Gloria Stewart, but especially the wonderfully weird Ernest Thysiger, also in Bride of Frankenstein. It's directed by the great James Whale, and it's just a pip. Uh, Kim borrowing some appropriate Michael Phillips terminology there. So yes, the horror category is one I did want to include. It was the peak. The 30s was the peak of the Universal monster movies, a lot of which uh, Kim mentioned. I think for me, Bride of Frankenstein is probably the highlight, uh, but also would recommend The Invisible Man, which people are probably interested in now just because of the really good new version of that. But as my representative for this genre, I'm going to go not with a universal monster movie, but an RKO film. And if anyone has a problem with that, they can take it up with King Kong himself. King Kong is my pick. I know it's a different studio. It's a different sort of monster slash horror movie, but it's so good. This one is one of those that's in my top 20 of all time that I wanted to put it in my starter pack. I just love the old-fashioned special effects here. The stop-motion work by Willis O'Brien is such a marvel. It has a handcrafted elegance and also a rickety charm where it's always reminding you that it's fake, but that's part of what is kind of magical about it in a strange way. And the crucial thing is that O'Brien knew that even spectacle like this needed to be tied to human emotional matters. And so think of a moment where they, they give so much time and care to this early scene of King Kong fainting after he's been assaulted by these gas bombs on the island. So to put us in sort of the emotional experience of this monster. Now, King Kong I'll put it out there. It's absolutely racist. It's absolutely sexist. It's problematic with a Empire State Building-sized capital P. (laughs) But it has a lot of interesting ideas roiling around amidst that stuff. Kong also can be seen as standing in for victims of modern colonialism, the way his country has been invaded and he's being exploited. It's also a cautionary environmental fable, humanity despoiling nature and and nature biting back. So King Kong has so many metaphorical implications going on beyond the adventure stuff. It really is timeless. And if you haven't seen it for some reason, you can find it on Amazon Prime and YouTube movies. Yeah, I'm a fan of the 33 Kong as well. And all good horror movies have that metaphorical resonance, I believe. So that makes sense. And that's a genre that I didn't include in my starter pack. So I'm glad that you did. My number four is another romantic comedy, but distinctly of the musical variety. And unlike Ninotchka, which is a movie that's fizzy, but still has a foot in the real world of the 1930s, it's actually addressing this idea of communism and what life is like under that rule. This movie's feet, and there are a lot of feet moving in this one, they're all firmly entrenched in the fantasy world. You have to have some Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Yes, you do. In your 1930s starter pack. And this is going to be my make good, I think, for all the terrible things I said about him and maybe you as well during our Stanley Donnan marathon, right? There was some Audrey Hepburn interaction maybe we weren't fans of. Indeed, maybe the older Fred Astaire. Well, this is Fred Astaire in his prime with Ginger Rogers. They collaborated together 10 times. This is their fourth. It was their biggest box office success and his second biggest box 
box office success overall after Easter Parade, which was another marathon movie of ours. I'm not even going to try to explain the plot of Top Hat. It's so superfluous. It really yes. doesn't matter at all. It basically boils down to a case of mistaken identity and two people who start out not being in love end up being in love. That's Dale Tremont, Ginger Rogers, and Jerry Travers, who, of course, is playing an American entertainer. They're overseas on holiday, run into each other. A lot of escapades. What's most important is there's a whole lot of singing and dancing. The most famous song, and all the music's great. It's by Irving Berlin. The most famous tune, probably Cheek to Cheek. Mm -hmm. And that is so fun to watch because it's so sparse in terms of the editing. Medium long shots and long shots, and it's just about watching these performers and their bodies move together. You're basically just observing the artistry, and there's nothing more needed. But I also go back to a sequence like the Piccolino which is a tap dance number in Top Hat. And the camera starts by just following their feet as they glide out onto the dance floor, pulling back to reveal their full figures and, again, just lets them go. And I was watching it again today, Josh, and I never really understood why tuxedos, why men's formal dress needed to include tails. <laughs> and now I do. It's so we can watch them spin when someone like Fred Astaire moves. The women, like Ginger Rogers, every time they twirl, their dress goes up in the air, and it's this this wonderfully graceful, elegant maneuver. And you get that same elegance and grace with a stare when his tails are spinning along with his body. Every time this movie has come up over the years on the show, it's come up a few times. I feel obliged to mention the Purple Rose of Cairo, Mia Farrow's Cecilia escaping the depression by going to the theater and indulging in this carefree luxury and the gracefulness of Fred and Ginger. And you know what? You couldn't go see this movie right now in a movie house, even if it was playing, unfortunately. But I would say there are a few better ways to escape from your couch than watching Top Hat. Yeah. And you can do that on Google Play, Amazon Prime, iTunes, and other platforms. Yeah, if you're looking for a little distraction, a little escape, I don't know that every movie on our list from the 30s is going to serve that function, but definitely mm -hmm. these musicals will. And great pick. They are, Fred and Ginger are a genre unto themselves. Good point. So they're also going to be represented on my list just a little bit later. At number three, though, I have The Rules of the Game from 1939. Director Jean Renoir, he also marked this decade, though, from across the Atlantic with The Rules of the Game and Grand Illusion, as well as some notable films that I haven't seen, La Chine, Madame Bovary, and La Bête Humaine. Rules of the Game, here's another top 20 of all time for me. A comedy of manners, a social satire, a treatise on the human condition, basically follows a bunch of aristocrats who gather for a weekend of games and hunting on a country estate. Renoir, he directed, but also co-stars, he also wrote, and he does play one of the sillier guests, I think you can say. So I had seen this, Adam, before we did our Luis Bunuel marathon. And thinking about it now and watching some scenes after that, it strikes me that Rules of the Game is sort of like Boonwell with heart. It's certainly a class satire, but it also has a lot of empathy for mm -hmm. these fools. And, and the tone is closer to something like Pedro Almodovar, I think, than maybe what Boonwell brings to most of the movies we saw. It's also – Rules of the Game is so formally 
exciting. Even today, Renoir beat Orson Welles and Citizen Kane by a couple of years with his use of deep, focused cinematography. There are some fluid tracking shots during this metaphorical rabbit hunt and a really grand tracking shot along a ballroom near the end that encapsulates all of the characters. So the rules of the game, that's going to be my Renoir representative. It's pretty widely available via streaming, actually. Criterion Channel, Amazon Prime, Canopy, if you want to go through your library that way, and also YouTube movies. Definitely one I considered for my list. His Grand Illusion from 37 is probably still my all-time biggest blind spot. It's a revered movie, does appear on a lot of those sight and sound type lists, and I still need to see it. Maybe sometime over the next few weeks, I will get a chance. My number three also comes from 1939. It's Howard Hawks's Only Angels Have Wings. Maybe came up just in passing during our 15th anniversary celebration at the Music Box as we discussed Rio Bravo after watching it with listeners. But you got to have a good action-adventure film from the 30s on this list. And, of course, you could go with something like Michael Curtiz and Errol Flynn and Captain Blood or even Shanghai Express, which we talked about during our Dietrich von Sternberg marathon. But this is the one for me that I think offers the most thrills. And you will also see, in addition to watching Cary Grant in the film and watching Gene Arthur and that great pairing, Rita Hayworth is in it in a breakout role. And it's actually only one of three Hawks films that's currently on the Criterion Collection, at least by my count. His Girl Friday and Red River are the other two. There's an essay that's included with the disc for Only Angels Have Wings from Michael Schregau. And he says this, Angels is a precursor to a Robert Altman film in its bursts of rapid fire, overlapping dialogue, and its off handed tragic comedy and improvisational snap. In place of plot, Hawks and his favorite screenwriter Jules Furthman set up a succession of comic and dramatic situations that pop with laughs, thrills, and free songs. And I should say something about that plot as it is it's set in a fictional South American town called Barranca. It's a port town. Jean Arthur is a traveler. She's an entertainer. She ends up meeting Jeff Carter, played by Grant, who is a pilot with a penchant for dangerous missions, he basically runs an airmail company. Thomas Mitchell is in the film as his best friend and business partner, who is called The Kid. And I thought that was interesting, Schregau's comments, because I would have never thought about the film as a precursor to an Altman movie. But I absolutely get it. But the most important part is what he said about what you get in place of plot. For Hawks, and we did talk about this to an extent in looking at Rio Bravo, plot and character are all about action. Howard Hawks. What does a man or a woman do when confronted with different scenarios, the different tests, whether it's romantic or professional or both? And when those two conflict with each other, as they so often do through those actions, their true characters are revealed. And I just think Hawks take on romance, on relationships between men and women is so fascinating. This movie has one of my all time favorite proclamations of love from Gene Arthur. Jeff. You don't have to be afraid of me anymore. I'm not trying to tie you down. I don't want to plan. I don't want to look ahead. I don't want you to change anything. I love you, Jeff. There's nothing I can do about it. I just love you, that's all. I feel the same way about you. The kid does. Anything you do is all right with me. The kid? Yes, he doesn't ask you for anything or get in your way or bother you, does he? He drives me nuts. I was thinking about this great scene in relation to Rio Bravo because we talked about how scared John T. Chance, John Wayne seems of feathers. Mm -hmm. And that 
fear, really, of any kind of domesticity, in addition to a few other fears, is definitely at play there. But her saying, Jeff... I'm not trying to tie you down. I'm not trying to change you in any way. I just love you. That's all. And I suppose it's tempting to hear that and go, what a fantastic version of love for a man, right? Having a woman just say, you can be whoever you want to be, and I will just be here for it. But honestly, I'm more struck by Hawks acknowledging that love between men and women is really the same thing. The only difference being that he doesn't sweep the kid up in his arms and kiss him, which is what he does with Gene Arthur. But otherwise, she says it. She has the exact same feelings for him that the kid does. And Grant does get a good joke in there, which is to say, yeah, and he drives me crazy, as she's probably going to do as well. There are some great aerial scenes in this film. In fact, it did make my top five movie flight scenes, a lot of groundbreaking special effects for 1939. It also made years ago a top five we did breaking up the boys club. Gene Arthur, obviously the character doing that in this great film, which is available on the Criterion channel, but Amazon Prime, iTunes, and Vudu as well. Can I add another one to this category? The Please action do. adventure. So you mentioned Errol Flynn in Captain Blood, which is just fantastic. I have always loved him in Adventures of Robin Hood as mm -hmm. well. I can remember this was when I was really young, but those who grew up around Chicago maybe recall, I think it was on WGN, there would be family classics. And they were usually Sunday afternoons, I believe, which is when we were often at my grandparents' house. So a lot of the times family classics would be put on, we'd plop in front and frequently it seems to me – Adventures of Robin no Hood was playing, and I got to watch Errol Flynn in those sword fights and some great action scenes and obviously all the charm as well. So, yeah, really strong genre in the 1930s action and adventure. All right, so number two. Well, Charlie Chaplin kind of had to be on this list because the 1930s held two of his greatest features, Modern Times and City Lights. Modern Times is in my top 10 of all time, so that's going to have to be my pick. Uh, the movie's enduring relevance is why I value Modern Times so much. This story of Chaplin's Little Tramp, and this was his last screen appearance as the Tramp, just watching this figure being gobbled up by the societal, the economic, and the technological forces of labor certainly spoke to the years right after the Great Depression. But every time I watch it, whether it was 25 years ago or you know, shortly after the 2008 recession or now in the tumult of today, it just seems to ring even truer. It's like, oh, the movie's about now. It was made then, but it's about now. And plus, this has some of Chaplin's all-time great visual gags, which never get old. The tramp frantically trying to keep up with an assembly line, uh, that moment where he's stuck in a factory machine's giant gears, or even when he's trying to survive a meal via that monstrous feeding machine <laughs> that keeps stuff in his face. So this is all brilliant comic material and set pieces, as I said, really still applies today. And Modern Times is streaming on the Criterion channel, Amazon Prime, and you can find it via Canopy. So some overlap for us at number two. I have Charlie Chaplin as well, but I am going with his other masterpiece, at least one more from the period City Lights, 1931. It was his prior film to Modern Times. There was a five-year gap between the two, but what a back-to-back -back set of movies. I think about this movie coming off of human bondage again, talk about it here in a little bit on the show, but it's the uplifting counter to of human bondage and that you've got a character, the tramp who falls in love with this blind girl and kind of becomes obsessed with trying to help her. He finds out that she's going to be evicted. And even though he doesn't have any money himself, 
he tries to scrape together whatever he can, eventually does come into some cash so that he can try to help them and maybe improve their lives. Now, I have a confession. I haven't seen Modern Times or City Lights since 1998. I can't actually tell you which one I think is the better film. I'm going with City Lights here because of my memories of it, especially that ending. And I'm not going to rehash my essays I wrote back in 1998 when I took a class on silent comedy that compared the films of Chaplin and Keaton. Oh, I could do it. We could get into the place of sentimentality in silent comedies like this and whether or not it truly belongs. I mean, that is the key distinction, really, between Chaplin and Keaton is that use of sentimentality. And I think it's why for a time, and maybe we're still in that time, it's become way more fashionable to prefer Keaton to Chaplin because the sentimentality seems a little bit overdone, perhaps, or a little bit schmaltzy and also manipulative. It's easy to do. You could argue that when you pull at the heartstrings a little bit, anybody is going to fall for that, whereas Keaton was more inventive and maybe more ambitious. That might be the case. But when you've got that perfect blend, as I think you do here in City Lights and in modern times of pathos and comedy, then that's Chaplin at his pinnacle. And of course, there's also that great element here, as it is in modern times, of social commentary. I mentioned the really famous ending of this movie. But what about the opening, right, where he is riffing a little bit on the advent of talkies, This had happened three years earlier. He doesn't want to make the shift yet, doesn't Mm -hmm. think cinema necessarily needs it. He can still tell his stories with the camera. And so he has a nod to that by having this big public forum where statues are being unveiled in honor of peace and prosperity. And keeping in mind, this is 1931. We know what period America is in, and yet there's this big civic display of everyone's benevolence and basically paying tribute to themselves, all these wealthy people, as they unveil this statue. And when they talk, when they make their speeches, there is sound, but it's like Charlie Brown parents talking, right? It doesn't matter what they're saying as far as Chaplin is concerned. But then when they pull off the awning or whatever is covering the statue, of course, what's there sleeping on one of the statues, it is the little tramp. And we see how outraged the crowd is then at what he's doing, that he's somehow besmirching the honor of the statue and their honor, of course, as well. And at one point, as he's trying to get down, Chaplin's face perfectly aligns his nose with the hands of one of the statues. So it looks like he is quite blatantly thumbing his nose at the crowd. The tramp is doing it unintentionally. Chaplin is doing it quite intentionally, trying to mock these people for essentially applauding themselves. You talked about the sight and sound list back in 2012. We didn't get asked to participate in that poll. Maybe 2022 we'll hold out for that, but we still did our own list on the show. If you look at the official 2012 ballot, City Lights was number 50 on the critics list. It was number 30 on the director's list. So if you need a movie to check a box on one of the more revered films ever you maybe haven't seen, this might be your opportunity. And worth noting, back in 1952, when Sight and Sound published the first ever greatest films of all time poll, Bicycle Thieves was number one from DeSica. Chaplin City Lights was number two. And you can see it on Google Play, YouTube, Amazon, and Vudu. Yeah, I think to me, if there's a distinction between them, I don't even know if I would say that City Lights is more sentimental. I just find it more romantic. I think, you know, that's the direction Mm -hmm. he's more interested in that film. And either way, City Lights, Modern Times, definitely check one of those out if you haven't seen either of them. All right, my number one, and yes, this is, you know, at the top because it's probably personal favorite of mine, 
swing time. I am going back to Fred and Ginger. It was Fred and Ginger's decade. Nine of their 10 films together came out in the 1930s. So they pretty much owned this decade. You can't go wrong with Top Hat, Adam, your pick. Uh, cheek to Cheek, The that's an Irving Berlin number. Yep. Um, I, I wrote extensively in, in my book about Ginger's feather dress in that scene because, yeah, the tuxes are great, but that feather dress is so crucial to their Cheek to Cheek performance scene. Um, you know, but after our family marathon of their films we did a few years ago, I went ahead and ranked all of them, and I did have Swing time from 36 slightly ahead of top hat for the number one spot and it might come down to just one number it might simply be because i think their most exhilarating production number is never going to dance the music here by jerome kern and the lyrics by dorothy fields does she dance very beautifully who the girl you're in love with yes very the girl you're engaged to. The girl you're going to marry. Oh, I don't know. I've danced with you. I'm never going to dance again. Though I'm left without a penny, the wolf was discreet. So you're right, Adam. Let's not worry about the plot when it comes to these movies. Basically, the dancers that Astaire and Rogers are playing at this point, they've agreed not to pursue their unrequited romance. But what that does is it sets the emotional narrative for this particular number, which traces an arc. They go from this feigned indifference to a slightly renewed interest to outright passion and then painful regret, all in a couple of minutes. This all takes place on a ravishing Art Deco nightclub set that features uh, twinned, curved staircases that come around to meet at the top of the screen. And as they begin, Astaire and Rogers, they tentatively circle each other until it happens almost without us noticing it, that they slip into unison. And they start flowing in sync, even though they seem to be resisting it somehow at the same time. I can describe the rest of the scene, but really, you know, and you will want to see how these staircases come into play. So really, you should just watch it. I will note that I think this one has more sensuality that... Most of their scenes are probably, I wouldn't say missing, um, but this has definitely is the most sensuality of all of their numbers. Um, and maybe it's because it involves a certain reticence that they're playing with as well. So we will link to that scene, Never Gonna Dance. But you can also watch the full movie at Amazon Prime and at YouTube Movies. I, I'll, I'll just say lastly, Fred and Ginger movies and numbers, usually in their other films, they want you to applaud, right? You're just wowed when it's done. This one, Never Gonna Dance, you just you feel like letting out this sigh, this hmm. like contented sigh. I love it. I love Swing Time as well. You're right. So many memorable songs and performances in that one. A fine romance, The Way You Look Tonight. Pick Yourself Up, honestly, might be my favorite one in Swing Time. So great choice. And The Way You Look Tonight kind of comes into this number as well, like a little bit of a reprise. My number one 1930s film for this starter pack is a 1931 movie. It is the classic, I suppose, thriller noir. And we'll get more into that, why I think it's the number one. And it had to be on my list in a second, M from Fritz Lang, of course, who made Metropolis, among many other films. And you have Chaplin clinging to silent storytelling 
in city lights and thumbing his nose, as we said, at talking pictures in addition to the aristocracy, if you will. You have Fritz Lang here making his first movie with sound and really embracing it. This film M doesn't rely on dialogue at all. It still is driven by the camera absolutely to tell the story. You can point to moments like the first murder that we see. We don't see it all. It all happens off screen or the serial killer that the movie is about. The whole movie is about the hunt for this killer played by Peter Lorre. When we see him confront that victim earlier, we don't see him at all. What we see is a shadow of him against a white wanted poster, but he uses sound in really interesting key ways. This is a movie that's often credited with being the first one to really employ a leitmotif. It's Peer Gintz in the Hall of the Mountain King. That's how we know the serial killer is around because we hear him whistling it. And the reason it's number one for me, Josh, is besides being a masterpiece, we're talking about the best films of their respective genres, or certainly some of the best films of their respective genres. And M is a hybrid that was basically the first noir, the first crime procedural, the first serial killer movie. And there's a sequence in it that amounts to what became the first heist sequence that influenced every other bank robbery movie, every other crime movie that followed. I think maybe because we were preparing for our bonus content discussion for our family members on Patreon of Sin City, I was putting this list together and thinking about that film. Listen to what Roger Ebert had to say about it. He said, certainly M is a portrait of a diseased society, one that seems even more decadent than the other portraits of Berlin in the 1930s. Its characters have no virtues and lack even attractive vices. In other stories of the time, we see nightclubs, champagne, sex, and perversion. When M visits a bar, it is to show close-ups of greasy sausages, spilled beer, rotten cheese, and stale cigar butts. And it all does take place within this underworld of Berlin, where these horrible atrocities are being committed by the killer. And then you have the criminals themselves who are out to exact justice on him. So it's a movie that might actually be a nice double feature with Sin City if you were looking for such decadence. And I mentioned that Sight and Sound list from 2012, M, number 56, on the critics list number 75 on the director's list and available on almost all of those platforms we've been mentioning including amazon prime and itunes and still blood curdling i mean it it will really unnerve you sometimes as we were saying these musicals give you some distance and some comfort this is one film that is going to upset you many many decades later yeah it is before we get to any other honorable mentions i'll read some feedback from zach in chicago wrote in said i don't know if dodsworth from 1936 cracks my top five 1930s movies. There are so many contenders, but I think it might crack my own top five movies about marriage list. What's remarkable is this 1930s William Wyler movie about a disintegrating marriage still seems modern today. It can't escape being a product of its time. It does side more with Walter Houston's husband, especially in its final third, but the wife gets her moments and you understand why she wants to break free. I think she's more sympathetically portrayed than some critics do today. Anyways, if you've never seen it, you need to decide for yourself. It's no marriage story, but, and I think Michael Phillips might have my back here. It makes Kramer versus Kramer look like it was the one made 80 years ago. Thank you very much for that, Zach. And Josh, are there any films that we haven't touched on you definitely yeah. want to give a little attention? Yeah, I definitely want to throw some more titles in case people want to go beyond the 10 we've mentioned and more of a deep dive. I wish my list had been had more international titles beyond Renoir. Here's one I'll throw out there. Yosujiro Ozu's I Was Born But. Mm-hmm. Also maybe a good place to start with him as a filmmaker. We've talked about 1939 being so such a great year. Here are two more reasons why you have the women and you have 
Stagecoach. How about 42nd Street, a non-Fred and Ginger musical that definitely deserves your time. And a couple more here. We've done a few marathons, Adam. You've mentioned the Dietrich von Sternberg one. I think Shanghai Express it would be, maybe be my representative mm-hmm. uh, of that marathon that people might want to check out. We also did a Marx Brothers marathon, and longtime listeners know, probably no surprise that they're not represented in our picks, but I do think if you wanted to get a flavor of their work in the decade, You'd have one to. that one, you would have to, and one that I think we both really liked was A Night at the Opera. Mm-hmm. My romantic comedy pick, Nanachka, I had some backups there, including the one you said, Josh, The Awful Truth with Cary Grant and Irene Powell, but also The Thin Man with Myrna Loy and William Powell, and you could go with another Lubitsch as well, Trouble in Paradise, a very good romantic comedy. You mentioned Stagecoach. Which surely, if you're going to talk about a Western, you have to talk about that John Ford film from the 30s. But how about his young Mr. Lincoln as a biography? I do really like Barbara Stanwyck in Stella Dallas, King Veter's melodrama from the time. And in terms of a political drama, there's always Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And yeah, there's probably about 20 other films we'd love to mention. But those are our top five films of the 1930s, our starter pack. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We're going to zero in on 1934 next and the first film in our Betty Davis marathon of human bondage. Plus, it's a brave new world in film spotting madness. After a couple of upsets, we are down to the elite eight. Stay with us. Heaven, I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I seek When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Heaven, I'm in heaven And the cares that hung around me through the week Seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to climb a mountain And to reach the highest peak Before he created the music He lived every bit of it Let's go crazy, Josh. Now's as good a time as any. You're right. That's from the trailer for 1984's Purple Rain, starring his purpleness, Prince. Purple Rain, not the only significant rock film from 84. You've got Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, the great Talking Heads concert film, and a little gem called This is Spinal Tap. Next week on the show, we're going to continue our 8 from 84 series. We're talking about all three films, but... It might focus primarily on Purple Rain, as that's the one, Josh, you haven't seen of the trio. It's also the one I haven't seen in the longest time, if that makes sense. When I was a kid in 84, 85, I watched Purple Rain all the time. It was on repeat. I'm assuming this is an HBO experience. Yeah, it was on repeat on HBO. So (laughs) I watched it over and over again. But Spinal Tap is a movie 
I probably end up watching at least once a year, even if it's just with my bandmates who I see about once a year, my old junior high and high school band. This is Spinal Tap somehow manages to get turned on. It's quite the rock cliche. And Stop Making Sense is a Demi film that I just saw for the first time, I think about five or six years ago. Didn't properly appreciate the talking heads. And really, it was Demi's doc that maybe realized the error of my ways. So those are more fresh in my mind. Purple Rain, it's been a while. Yeah, stop making sense. That's really fresh. I think it was at the time of Demi's death when I first saw that and we did that list. Purple Rain, I can't wait to see. Can I share with you my uh, Purple Rain, the song story, though? I don't think I've told you this. I can't uh, wait. This was, I think it was not last fall, but the previous fall in Michigan, picking apples at a, you know, a really bucolic orchard, lovely day. And we hear drifting over the trees a rendition of Purple Rain. Um, and so we get closer to where you pay for your apples, a big barn, a big store. And there's one guy doing a really, really nice job performing Purple Rain, but I think he just had like a, a keyboard basically and singing. And a whole crowd of drunk middle-aged moms, I'm married to a middle-aged mom, so I can say this, <laughs> she was not drunk because of hard apple cider that they had been serving, lifting their With cans. their lighters or the cans? No, the cans. The hard apple cider cans were their lighters in the air and everyone just waving. Mind you, I think this is like 2.30 in the afternoon. Everyone r- waving them back and forth. We joined the crowd, sang Purple Rain. Yeah, and I, you'll never I, hear it the same way. I will never hear it the same way. And I don't know that the movie is going to be able to live up to that experience. <laughs> I don't think it can. What a great story. We will talk about Purple Rain and those other films next week on the show, as well as get into the film spotting madness final four. We've been doing some brainstorming behind the scenes here a little bit because we've got the eight from 84 series we can go to. We've got things like our Betty Davis marathon. We can fall back on with no new movies coming out here, but we might need a little bit more. And Josh, you had a great idea, which was looking ahead to hopefully seeing Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenet, in July. Let's just all hope that's going to happen. July 17. Whenever it happens, we hope to be prepared by going back through his entire filmography and revisiting those films, talking about them here on the show. So kind of a marathon, except we're looking at an entire body of work and we are going completely in chronological order. The only film of his that we have revisited on the show fairly recently was The Dark Knight. Otherwise, we've reviewed some when they came out, Mm -hmm. but we haven't gone back to reconsider them. So we're going to do that. And there's some selfish thinking behind this as well. Neither of us have ever made time for following his first feature film. Yeah. So this is an excuse to become Nolan Completus. It's it's honestly how I would like to prepare for every new film from a major filmmaker and you just never have the time, right? No. But, But the dream is to go back at the beginning, even if you've seen almost all of them, and just re-familiarize yourself with uh, their techniques, their themes, their interests. So this is a very exciting opportunity. After seeing following, we'll be able to do a Nolan ranked list. And I think that might be one fun way to wrap this up as well, to have a final conversation. Now that we've seen all these, how would we actually rank them, including Tenet? when it does hopefully come out. Yeah. We did need a clever name for this. We didn't want to just call it a Nolan retrospective, though that's essentially what it is. And we threw it out on Patreon to our family members, got a lot of very good responses. And one that I think, well, you can be the judge here yourself. One that I think started out a little bit as a joke has turned into the winner. Chad Camello wrote in and said, how about oeuvre view? 
It would have several merits. It'd be fun to listen to Adam and Josh try to pronounce it each time. View is related to spotting, and its double entendre covers the purpose of the project, which is to provide an overview of a filmmaker's oeuvre. I see no downside to this. I, I love it. As a matter of fact, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it out right here. Overview. Overview. I think we got it down. Christopher We're Nolan. Good. That's it. We can say it. We'll botch it in the weeks ahead, but we love it. Even if it was meant as a joke, even if it was meant to make fun of us for our poor French pronunciations from time to time, we're going to run with it. And this might be a recurring feature here on the show. Maybe only one a year. We'll see. Maybe we have to do two this year. But Overview, Christopher Nolan is coming your way soon. And attaching to that, Worth noting, I'm sure a lot of people listening have seen the news on this, but due to the theater closings, you can see some recent theatrical releases coming to VOD earlier than anticipated. So The Invisible Man, along with Emma and The Hunt, are going to be available on demand this weekend. Birds of Prey, which I actually just caught up with in the theater, the last movie I saw in a theater pre-self-quarantine, that's going to come out on March 24th. A quick note about our live shows for right now. Our New York City show, the show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, that's going to stay on just because it's June 19th and there's no reason to cancel it right now. We just don't have to make that call. That call may be made at a later date. Our May 16th show in L.A., probably leaning towards that being something that is going to get rescheduled, but we hadn't even put the tickets on sale for that yet. So, again, no decision really needs to be made. And we hope to be in Austin in August, and we'll leave it at that. We hope to be in Austin in August. Stay tuned for more news on the live tour. So speaking of watching movies, old and new, at home, the next picture show, they are going to tackle one that I've seen a lot of people watching that I have not had the courage to revisit. And no that's way. 2011's Contagion, the Soderbergh film, which I have seen and is quite good and freaked the hell out of me back then. Yeah, at the time. So I don't think I, don't I need that right now. now. But the next picture show folks, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky, they're going to tackle it. And, you know, their usual format is to pair a recent release with a classic. They're going to go with two older films, but from different eras. So Contagion from 2011, as I mentioned, they'll pair with 1950s Panic in the Streets. So that should be interesting. I'm definitely not watching Contagion. I'll think about whether I'm going to listen to this podcast. Yeah. So like us and probably like a lot of shows out there, they're making an adjustment going to focus on movies that are available on demand, past releases instead of new releases. You can get new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday at midnight, wherever you get your podcast. More info at nextpictureshow.net. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! We are getting closer to crowning a champion. Film Spotting Madness 2020. This year, 64 films from the 2010s, our annual bracket-style tournament. Only one of those films can reign supreme. And we're going to get down this week to the Elite Eight. Our listeners, kicking up the madness just a notch this year, Josh. Some big directors, you might even say the biggest directors, are out of the tournament entirely. I'm trying to look at this in a positive way. Okay. I mean, it, it pretty much completely, we'll get to this, but I think it pretty much completely ruined my bracket. Yeah. 
But it was also refreshing to see. I mean, we've had in a lot of polls and in previous madnesses, some familiar names dominate. Mm -hmm. And it was becoming almost a stereotype. I don't know what this means that we're getting new blood if these recent films and younger filmmakers are that exciting to listeners or if the listening demographic has shifted maybe a little bit. But whatever it is. I'm going to see this as as fresh blood to Film Spotting Nation. Yeah. Not, not that I might lose. <laughs> Voting in the Elite Eight round of this year's Madness kicked off earlier this week. We remind you that new rounds open every Monday. Before getting to those Elite Eight matchups, the Sweet 16 results. Again, over 3,500 votes cast in most of these matchups. We will start with the biggest blowouts. Maybe only two that really feel like blowouts. Two, maybe three. Parasite, once again dominating the competition, taking down Spike Jones's her 74% to 26%. Here's Adam Grossman. He's from Vancouver. The best film of 2019 has a really good shot at being the best film of the decade, doesn't it? I guess we'll find out as Parasite moves on to the final eight, which my vote is helping it to do. So I think most of us expected this result, Mad Max Fury Road over Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 72 to 28. The Social Network taking down Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, this one personally 61 hurts. to 39%. Social Network was the number four seed in the tournament, beating here the lowest seed to advance this far. We had Moonrise Kingdom all the way down at 45th. So it did have a good run. I'll it did have that. a good run. Here's Jake Albrecht. To all film spotting supporters who vote Social Network over Moonrise Kingdom, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. That's 61% of our audience who is clueless, apparently. Thank you, Jake. Moonlight over Richard Linklater's Boyhood, 59 to 41%. A number five taking down a number 12, a really strong showing for Moonlight, playing out, I think, as we anticipated it to. Knew it would be fairly close, but thought Moonlight had the edge. Yeah, and still, though, somewhat of a changing of the guard pick, I think. This is sort of what I'm talking about. Mm Maybe closer than we would have thought. We've got two that fall into that category. Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life up against Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, a number three seed going against a 19 seed. Pretty close, 54 to 46. We then had Get Out defeating Denis Villeneuve's arrival also 54 to 46, the number 10 seed get out going against what was the Cinderella of the tournament up to this point. We heard from Vinny in Philly. We need to send a rival to the sunken place as punishment for taking out Lewin Davis. And I yes, guess that's what's happened. A rival did beat inside Lewin Davis in round two. We have two more here for you that would go under the heading, the all Paul Thomas Anderson edition of upsets. The 25 seed ex machina going up against PTA's number nine phantom thread. I think some of us, I'm speaking for myself and Sam, may have underestimated Alex Garland's ex machina. But even acknowledging that, there's no way anyone really thought it was going to make it to the Elite Eight. And yet here it is, taking down Phantom Thread 58 to 42. I mean, PTA, pretty much a sure thing in these tournaments. Maybe Phantom Thread not as sure of a thing mm-hmm. as the other PTA film to fall. This shocks me. The number this, two seed. This ruined my bracket. <laughs> the number two seed, The Master, going up against number 18 seed, Lady Bird. And Lady Bird wins 57 to 43%. That is not even really close. Not really. And yes, of course, I'm a little bit despondent that my beloved Paul Thomas Anderson, my beloved The Master, is out of the tournament. But if you think I'm going to lose any sleep about Greta Gerwig and Lady Bird advancing my number five film of the 2010s, well, then you don't know me well enough. I can totally live with this, but it does mean there's no PTA. 
There's no Coen Brothers. There's no Tarantino, no Scorsese or Wes Anderson in the tournament anymore. Yeah. And that no one would predict have predicted that. I mean, that's not a landscape you expected. Maybe some of those would have fallen when it came down to the final four, but the elite eight, yep. you would have thought they'd have to be in there. So as we look at those elite eight, we have two best picture winners. We have three writer-director debuts, and you've got in Terrence Malick, George Miller, and David Fincher, the KG veterans. The first matchup for you, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life against Bong Joon-ho's Parasite is what most people thought was the best film of 2019. It was the best picture winner. Is it going to advance to the final four, Josh? The way things are going, yeah. yeah. And and I don't... Steamrolling maybe, the competition. Maybe it's recency. Maybe it's that, as we did hear from Adam Grossman, a lot of people do refer to it as the best film of the decade. They were very comfortable doing that after it only being out a couple of months. So that could be helping it too. But... I'm going to say it's probably going to go that way. Yeah, and The Tree of Life is a bit of a polarizing film. There are plenty of very smart cinephiles I know who don't care for that movie at all. And I got to be honest, I don't know anybody who saw Parasite and didn't pretty much love it. So I'm with you. I think it's going to advance. We know how we're going to vote. We're going with Malik in The Tree of Life, right? We're going down with Malik. Parasite was in my top 10, but Tree of Life was my number three. Tree of Life was your number two. That's right. Okay. Greta Gerwig already said it, my number five film of the decade, but it's going up against Jordan Peele's Get Out. It's the battle of 2017 debuts, and Get Out for You was the movie that made your top five, right, Josh? Yeah, and this is just a brutal showdown here. I know we're getting down to the Elite Eight, but still, they have to lose one of these new filmmakers that not have them be able to advance uh, really kind of sucks. David Fincher's The Social Network. And this one, I think, is going to be a battle to the end versus Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Moonlight, higher on your best of the decade list. Social Network, higher for me. It was in my top 15, I believe. So I have to give the edge to that one. You're definitely going Moonlight. Barry Jenkins, if Beale Street could talk, also made my top 20. Yeah, I'm going Moonlight. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Social Network get this, though. That seems to be... Even though it's the older film, it also seems to be beloved by mm -hmm. younger viewers, younger, has younger fans also. So I could see that maybe beating out Moonlight. Finally, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road versus Alex Garland's Ex Machina. I mean, who knows what's going to happen here with Ex Machina showing that it had this sort of support, which I'm glad to see. But yeah, I mean, Mad Max Fury Road, the best film of the decade to me. So According that's to where you, I'm voting. And I think I had it at number seven, maybe number six. I'm with you. Fury Road is my pick. This might be the end for Ex Machina. You can vote now over at filmspotting.net slash madness. You can leave a comment. We might just share that on an upcoming episode. Once again, filmspotting.net slash madness. Let's go ahead and look at the leaderboard. We had 678 prediction brackets submitted. After the Sweet 16, we have another new name at the top. It was Justin Tafe last week who dropped down to 12th. Wow, Still not bad. pretty good showing. Yeah, not quite the drop-off that you had, Josh. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> week one leader, Mark Chaplin, all the way down to 99th. Ouch. That means that we have a new leader. He is Costa, or Costa. I'm sorry, I'm going to go with Costa in Washington, D.C. He shared a little bit of feedback as we reached out to him to congratulate him on being in first at this point. That's so cool that I'm in first. I suspect I won't be there for long since I don't have Mad Max moving on next round, but fingers crossed. My name is Costa and I live in Washington, D.C. I've been listening for a little over a year now and I absolutely love it. I look forward to it every week. Thank you for your compelling discourse on the things we all love. It is so comforting knowing there's a whole community of people as passionate about movies as me. Well, thank you for the kind words. And indeed, there's a whole community out there voting in Film Spotting Madness. Costa did 
pretty impressive work here, Josh. He picked all eight of the Sweet 16 matchups correctly. His final four, Moonlight, Ex Machina, Get Out, and Parasite to win it all. It doesn't look bad. It doesn't look bad, does it? Now, how about how we did? It's our bracket challenge. Me, you, our producer, Sam, Mike Merrigan, the founding father of Film Spotting Madness. We do this little prediction bracket thing, and there's no prize for first place. But if you finish dead last, you have to watch whatever Adam Sandler movie comes on Netflix this year. Can you still you... recall the title, Adam? Of the Adam Sandler movie you had to watch. I was going to say, you were doing so well in this tournament, Josh, and now you're going to have to keep in mind whatever new title comes out. I think it was called Murder Mystery. I think you're right. Good job. Murder Mystery is the one I watched as last year's loser. We have a new leader in the clubhouse coming up from fourth place, going all the way up to one is Mike Merrigan. So he's in 133rd place overall. He got six out of eight predictions right in this round. As far as points, there are 168 possible remaining for Mike. He's the only one with all final four predictions left. Adam, you're in second place, 147th place overall, five out of eight correct. You have 143 possible remaining. Sam's in third. He's at 209th place. He got four out of eight right and has 148 points possible remaining. Hmm. Hmm. Here I am in fourth, 250th place. Oh, this hurts. Three out of eight right. I only have 106 possible remaining. Just what's the bottom line? Is there a path for me to not lose? I think there is a path. Okay. It's a treacherous one. That doesn't look good. I don't think you should have a lot of optimism, but I didn't have the strength. There's been about four different times this week where I started trying to do the math and even getting down to the elite eight, it's still a little bit too complicated for me, a guy who only took one math class in his four years of a liberal arts education. So Josh, I'm leaving it alone. We're going to see how it all plays out over the coming weeks. But here's what we know. Mike is in a pretty good spot. He's got get out beating the social network to win it all. Mad Max Fury Road and the Tree of Life round out his final four. So he's in pretty good shape. I lost the master for my final four in this last round, but I still have Mad Max Fury Road, my eventual winner, along with Moonlight and Parasite. The bad news, yeah, you had the master winning it all. It's out, but you still got the social network, Fury Road and Tree of Life left. And Sam, who it seems like ages ago lost two of his final four. Yeah, I the Wolf we, of Wall Street and the Grand Budapest Hotel. I had written him off. He still has Mad Max Fury Road alive, winning it all, and Parasite mm. as the runner-up. So having your number one choice, having your eventual champion be out of the tournament, it doesn't bode well for you. All right. Well, I'm not going to look up what Adam Sandler has coming out quite yet. If you submitted a bracket, you probably know where to check to see how you're doing in the standings. Look for the view bracket link on the Madness homepage and then click on the predictions link. So far, sneaking a peek at how the voting is going. Three of them, they're not very close. But that one I said, the social network versus Moonlight, it seems to change. The leader seems to change our to our thousands of votes in already. And we're talking about differences depending on when you look of seven votes, six votes, 10 votes. It is going to come down to the wire and I can't wait to see how it plays out. If you want to participate again, filmspotting.net slash madness elite eight voting is open until Monday, March 23rd at 11 a.m. Central time. And right after that, the final four voting opens. So if somehow you're not getting enough of madness with all that, well, over for our Film Spotting family members on our Patreon page, we've got the fit going on. 
the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament. And this is basically a 32-film bracket that's made up of those movies that were left out of madness proper. So the ones particularly that listeners wrote in saying, why didn't you pick this? Why didn't you give this a slot? Well, we're giving them a slot in the FIT. And we're also doing a matchup a day, again, over on our Patreon page. So that means the fit should wind up about the same time as Madness does. Just to give you an idea of some of the titles that are facing off there. Call Me By Your Name, Faces Places, Melancholia, which I saw one outlet, I forget where, placed it as the best film. That's right. Of the 20s. IndieWire, maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. Creed is on there, A Ghost Story, Paddington 2. So a lot of great films going at it in the fit. In fact, those titles you just mentioned are our initial winners. As of this taping, they have all won their first round matchup and are going on to round two. As we're taping, Paddington 2 looks like it's going to take down The Wind Rises from Miyazaki. If you want to participate, we encourage you to go to patreon.com slash filmspotting. In addition to being able to participate in the additional madness, you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, live presale and discounts, a merch discount, and our monthly bonus episodes. Next up, it is a We Were Wrong Once review of 2005 Sin City. Sam Van Halgren joining us for that. That's going to come out Monday the 23rd. If you'd like to get that and all those other benefits, patreon.com slash filmspotting. You disgust me. Me? I disgust you. You. You, you're too fine. You won't have none of me, but you'll sit here all night looking at your naked females. Mildred. You cared, you dirty swine. I never cared for you, not once. I was always making a fool of you. You bored me stiff, I hated you. It made me sick when I had to let you kiss me. I only did it because you begged me. You hounded me, you drove me crazy. And after you kissed me, I always used to wipe my mouth. Wipe my mouth. But I made up for it. For every kiss I had a laugh. <laughs> we laughed at you. Miller and me and Griffiths and me. We laughed at you. Because you were such a mug, a mug, a mug. You know what you are. A clip there from 1934's Of Human Bondage, an adaptation of the W. Somerset Mom novel starring Leslie Howard and, of course, Betty Davis. She plays a waitress, a barmaid, if you will, that Howard's medical student, Philip, falls for and basically becomes obsessed with regardless of how terribly she treats him. And that's really all she does the entire film. Of Human Bondage is the first movie in our four-film Betty Davis marathon and a good place to start because it was her breakout role. There's all sorts of ways we could start this discussion, but fortunately, we've got our friend, the professor, Nathaniel Myers, playing along once again with this marathon and has some good fodder for this discussion. Josh, let's hear from Nathaniel. Hey, guys. So I'm grateful in these crazy times of ours for the constancy that only a film spotting marathon can give, though... I might have happily gone without the image of a TB-ridden Betty Davis sprawled on the floor with only a few hours left to live. It is quite a striking image, though, and it's an example of what I liked most about of human bondage, the way that it feels, at least occasionally, almost completely unbridled. I got a sense of that in some of its aesthetics, like its use of dissolves and wipes, or the nearly symmetrical shots of the actors looking forward at the camera, 
and the way that their gazes seemed to grow more embittered and uglier over time. I got it also in the story itself, in Philip Carey's infatuation with this woman that, honestly, having not read the book, I didn't really buy, except as some kind of dark meditation on obsession and self-loathing, even maybe a kind of masochism. And I got it, of course, in Davis herself, who feels like an agent of chaos on the screen, from whatever that accent of hers was to, more seriously, her wild, spiteful, incredible blow-up during the film's climax. So guys, you've been putting together a 1930s starter pack for this episode, and I would be surprised to find of human bondage on that list. But I am wondering, if you were making, say, a 1930s performance starter pack, would you include Betty Davis for her work in this film? And was that performance enough to balance out some of its rougher edges? Thanks, guys. Thank you, Nathaniel. I I don't know, Adam, how much longer you're going to be able to squeeze uh, free labor out of Nathaniel, getting you out of (laughs) writing setups. He got a T-shirt. Okay, I guess. Give him a little something. He deserves it. Yeah, that's a good question. It's, you know, obviously we already know that the film itself of Human Bondage didn't make either of our lists. As far as Davis's performance being in a performance starter pack, it might be – I mean, it's – it's something. It's the reason to see the film. But I think it's also sort of a starter performance in some ways. Um, we'll find out as we get to see more of her films. But what was really interesting to me is how much I already saw here of baby Jane Hudson, who is, you know, that's Davis's notoriously unhinged former child star in 1962's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I think we're going to hopefully try to get that maybe in a bonus marathon review, Adam. But that's here. There are seeds of that already here in this performance as Mildred, and it's just starting to form. Nathaniel used words like unbridled, um, agent of chaos. And to me, what is key is how unapologetic Davis is in this part. There is not a moment that I sensed where she was trying to seek sympathy from Philip Carey, right. the Leslie Howard From the audience, from anyone. Or from the audience. She did not care. She was committed to this person and their behavior and their worldview. And I, I don't know if the movie, maybe some of my reticence, as it sounds like Nathaniel had as well, even though I liked it overall, I don't know that the movie um, serves her and serves that unapologetic nature as well as it could have. Hmm. Um judging by where it goes with her, yeah. I'll just say. Um, but the performance itself is stunning um, as what I think we're going to see a lot more of and as an introduction to who Davis could be, even in a film that isn't necessarily about her character and in some ways lets her character fall by the wayside, she's not going to let that happen no. any moment she's on screen. Yeah, I think I'm a little less satisfied with the film overall than you and a little bit less enamored with Davis overall. And you nailed it. She's not going to make my starter pack because I think this is a starter movie. You absolutely said it best. I'm confident we're going to see much more complex and nuanced performances as we see her take on more complex and nuanced roles in much better films than of human bondage. You're right. The elements are there and they come out more over the course of the film. But I was having some deja vu thinking about this movie going back to the start of our von sternberg dietrich marathon 
which is appropriate as we're talking about there, another huge star of the 1930s in Marlena Dietrich. And The Blue Angel, the movie that opened that marathon, was Dietrich's breakout, just as this was Davis's. And my snarky comment to Sam over Slack was that there's a lot of Blue Angel in Of Human Bondage, just none of the craft, unfortunately for me. And I think that's true comparing John Cromwell's direction to Von Sternberg's, but also Davis's performance to Dietrich's. But just look at the stories as I make that comparison. The Wikipedia plot summary of The Blue Angel is that the movie presents the tragic transformation of a respectable professor to a cabaret clown and his descent into madness. You can just adjust a few words and phrases and say, of human bondage presents the semi-tragic but mostly inspiring redemption of a respectable medical student who avoids descending into madness. One is definitely a clear descent, the Blue Angel. This one starts that way, but is ultimately an ascent. And he has that line, Philip Carey does at the end of the film, where he says, I had to be free to understand that all those years I dreamed of escape, it was because I was limping through life. And he says, I'm not limping anymore. My life's all right. It's, it's kind of brutal dialogue, frankly, in my opinion. But in both cases, these stories undoubtedly belong to the men. And Dietrich and Davis are both catalysts for their journeys and negative ones primarily. Yeah, to bolster your point, uh, we sat down to watch this as a family and uh, my daughters had also watched The Blue Angel and we just read the two or three line plot synopsis on the Criterion channel. Really? And one of, them, one of them said – Haven't we seen is, this? This is pretty much The Blue Angel, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I mean we've got both films being about men who are obsessed – Right. Against Mm -hmm. all their better judgment, they're obsessed with these women against the better judgment of their friends, of society as a whole. But for me, there's just nothing redeeming about Philip or Mildred. And I don't mean as human beings, even though that's arguably true for both of them as well. She's this unfeeling parasite and he's well-meaning and ineffectual to a fault. But I mean as characters. I think that eroticism and the sensuality and the seductiveness that's in The Blue Angel and I think needs to be here isn't really there. That real sense of self-loathing that comes through in The Blue Angel also isn't here. I didn't really buy his infatuation with her, just as Nathaniel mentioned. And the ambiguity of Wrath's downfall in The Blue Angel, how much of it is to blame on him and how much is it Lola's fault and his own hypocrisy and society's repression and hypocrisy, all those things we talked about with The Blue Angel. I don't think bondage really cares to open up any of those larger conversations because I think it does have an eagerness at the end to redeem that main character and to kind of leave us on a happy note. You know, there's – there is – I agree with you that it's hard to connect with Philip and this obsession, you know, Um, especially because you're right. As you described her at the top, she's coy with him sometimes but is also outright insulting. She mainly shows indifference and at one or two points, you know, betrays him, essentially. So I get that, absolutely. There is, however, a stalker reading of this story where you look at Philip not as the hero, which I know the movie does, um, but somewhat as the villain. And it's kind of interesting to think about that, some of his behavior and his pursuit of her. Um, Again, I think for that to be for me to really buy into that, the movie would have to pay more attention yeah. to Mildred ultimately than it does. But that's that's one interesting way to look at it, at least. Um, Blue Angel, you're right, the better film for sure. I'm not sure if I would say this has none of the craft. I think there's some interesting craft going on here um, with John Cromwell, the director, and the cinematographer, Henry W. Garrard. There are a number of it dissolves, a lot of dissolves in this film, and some of them um, superimposed images yeah, as super well. Yeah, superimpositions. Yeah, some oddly. of them are 
really unique, uh, different than what I'd seen before. There's one where Philip is sleeping and he reimagines in his dreams a date that has gone badly. So mm-hmm. we've already seen the bad date. And here, as the camera focuses on him asleep in his bed, in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, over his head sort of is superimposed a recreated date. It's what he's dreaming, essentially. Yeah. And, and it was just a nice effect to get in his head. Of course, it doesn't necessarily correlate with some of these emotional gaps that you're describing, which I do agree are there. Um, but it did add a little bit. It enlivened a movie that otherwise in some parts does feel a little bit stayed. Some of those technical choices did enliven it. For yeah. Me. And I think you use the right word about Davis's performance and what does keep you engaged with this film. It is that unapologetic quality, though, I would liken it to the same way we can't stop staring at a train wreck or a car accident. That's what it feels like some of the time where it really works for me is when she is a little more theatrical. Besides that rant that Nathaniel mentioned, where we do truly see the force that Davis can be on screen, she really unleashes the fury there. But my favorite Davis moment in the film is one where he's taken her back in, maybe for the second time, maybe the third time. And she seems once again, to be genuinely grateful. And she wants to express that gratitude to him. And they're going back and forth a little bit. And she asks about dinner. And he says, sure, if that's what you want. Basically, once again, deferring to her as he always does passively. And the way Davis says, nothing could delight me more. The camera's in a close-up on her. We know Philip's sitting below her on screen, out of the frame. And she's touching her hair a couple of times like she's performing. Then will you stay and have some dinner? Yes, if you want me to. Of course, Philip. Nothing could delight me more. Just a moment and I'll have everything ready. Again, the camera's only on her. So it's Davis there performing completely for the audience and saying, I'm saying nothing could delight me more. But I'm being completely ironic in this moment, Mm -hmm. and I don't feel this sense of gratitude for him in any way, shape, or form. She actually just can't be grateful in that moment. She can't be dutiful. She can act it, but she's going to let you know that she's acting. She's that full of contempt for him. And yeah, that phrase, agent of chaos, applies. But I think you need an adjective before it to really sum up who she is. And I saw it in the Criterion Collection blurb for this movie, and it's malevolent. She's a malevolent agent of chaos. Yeah, I think it does definitely get to that point. And that's how the movie ultimately wants you to see her. And I think a little more nuance in its vision of her would have gone a long way for this movie. I do think the performance, although the rant is what you're going to remember, and it is where we see um, full Davis and it's where we see a baby Jane Hudson, to be honest. I think there are other moments where she shows a subtlety in communicating this this disinterest, which she really does drip with at every moment. Yeah. A lot of it is with her body language, which has a reticence that is part of what you're talking about. When she's saying the right words but not meaning them, mm-hmm. it's exactly how she's holding her body or how far away she's remaining from Philip or whether she's turned to him while talking to him or, or turned to yeah. us. you know, Or rolling of the eyes or whatever yeah, the gesture yeah. is. And, and a lot of times it's even more subtle than rolling, rolling the eyes. But those eyes are her biggest weapon and they, they are like lighthouse beams and and she knows she's when she wants to cast them as weapons, which is what happens in that rant. And there's no pretending for anyone at that point, even if there may have been faux pretending um, for Philip, at least at some points in the movie during that climactic rant. Um, it's just all out there on the table. Yeah. And in terms of 
the craft and talking about some elements that did work for me. That use of point of view is interesting. I think it's actually the scene that happens right after the one I was just describing, where he's got this new love interest who is more in love with him than he is with her, because of course he's still obsessed with Mildred. Her name is Nora. And he's basically breaking it off with her because Mildred has come back. And it's very on the nose. The conversation underlines the theme of the movie, which is that we're all bound to someone or something. But we have seen this use of point of view of characters looking right at the camera when they talk. And this is where it struck me as being really effective because they're in a two shot talking, Philip and Nora, and the camera is traditionally placed kind of off to the side in a low angle two shot. He's sitting, she's standing next to him. And when she says to Philip, after all she's done to you with her own contempt for Mildred, even though she's never even met her, that's when Philip then looks at the camera and Nora looks right at the camera. And she's asking Philip, essentially, how could he? How could he take her back after all that she's done to him? But in staring at Mildred's face, that's what they're looking at. The camera's position right where a picture of Mildred is positioned. She's really saying it rhetorically and being very incriminating to her. It's as if she's saying, how could you? Mm-hmm. How could you do this to this man I love? And the fact that they're staring at us when they say it and dripping with that contempt, but they're looking at her It does align us with Mildred in an uncomfortable way. And I'd have to really go back and study the use of POV in the film. But there are definitely places where we see him looking directly at the camera more than we see her doing it. So it's always about the camera being right in the position where Mildred's face would be. So we're seeing how he's studying her. He's looking directly at us when he's doing it. And during that rampage, when she's so angry... She's looking for anything in the room that she can destroy or throw somewhere. The camera goes handheld from her point of view as she's looking around the room, scouring for any object to pick up. So, again, the movie is aligning us with her in that moment. It's Davis's perspective that we literally get. And in that way, it's a little bit shocking that it does that because she's so repugnant. Right. And it's not yet. You would think that would mean that this movie is taking her point of view from not just a technical or a narrative uh, perspective, but a thematic one as well. And it does, as I said, kind of toss her aside mm-hmm. um, in a way that doesn't really back that sort of reading up. I, I think of you're talking about the point of views, especially with Philip, their dates, you yes. know, where we see him, the intensity of his stare at her or, um, you know, either his longing or his suffering, really, right. when she's treating him that way. You mentioned Nora, um, played by Kay Johnson, uh, not many scenes, but you also feel like she she got out just in time. Right. Uh, and I think that speaks to that we're not aligned with Philip. When we see no. Nora, you, you don't feel like my instinct at least was not, oh no, Philip, like you lost someone important. My instinct was, Nora, trust me. You're yeah, better get you're away. better off. And you could say the same about the other woman that he meets, Sally, played by Francis D, um, in the last half of the film, who I think gives a good, quite a good performance. Mm-hmm. But I had the same instinct as like, eh, you don't, you know, you're good for Philip, but <laughs> I don't know if he's good for you. Yeah. No, definitely not. I would say I will go back to that death scene because Nathaniel commented on it. And I was watching on the Criterion channel. I'm guessing it's on the disc as well. There's a bonus feature, which is the great critic who actually helped us pick the titles that are in our marathon, Farron Smith-Neme. She 
does like a 14, 15 minute summary of Davis's career. And I only watched about four minutes of it because I didn't want to get into the movies we haven't seen yet. But I wanted to just get a little background and understand more of what she had done before she got to this film. And when she talks about a human bondage, she does say that nobody had ever seen on screen at that point, a death scene like that one with Davis and her commitment to it in terms of the sunken cheekbones, the straw hair, how emaciated she was. Nemes phrasing was that audiences and critics were rocked back on their heels by it. And I believe it. Yeah, you wouldn't recognize her. If if you had not seen this film before and just saw a still of that moment, it'd be hard to place Betty Davis as opposed to, you know, some of those earlier scenes of her as a waitress when she has that familiar face and again, those familiar eyes completely changed for that death scene. Yeah. I'm looking forward to more of Betty Davis as I know you are, Josh, in this marathon. I think we're going to take a week off Come back then for the second film, give you some time to catch up if you haven't had a chance to see Of Human Bondage yet. And Jezebel is the movie, according to Neme, she says, right before I shut it off, it's the first movie that gives us Betty Davis in the full flower of her talent. That film from 1938, Jezebel, is next. If you want to see the whole lineup and the platforms that you could watch those films on, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. This is a movie that's available of human bondage. That is on the Criterion channel, on Amazon Prime, and there might just be a free version of it out there on YouTube somewhere. All that information, again, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And Josh, that's our show. That's our show. Hey, if you're feeling a little lonely these days and want to talk movies, you can still do that. Of course, on social media, you can do it with me and you can do it with Adam. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. We're on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to head over to the show archives at filmspotting.net, use some extra time you may have to listen to the back catalog. We've got reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in Film Spotting Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s. We are on to the Elite Eight. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Next week on the show, it is the Film Spotting Madness Final Four and our 8 from 84 series continues with our rock trio. We'll take a look at Purple Rain, Stop Making Sense, and This is Spinal Tap. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at trnty.edu. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. All that and more. I never cared for you, not once. Ahead on Film Spotting. Just not enough bile in my voice to match Betty Davis. Not She's nearly, just spitting nearly venom. angry enough. <laughs> okay. Can you get that angry? I don't know if you could get that angry. <laughs> I don't think anyone can. Um, film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005 that's at filmspottingfamily.com